Take your Bibles this morning and let's go to Mark chapter 7. We're going to jump right into this. For the last two weeks, we've looked at verses 1 through 23 of Mark chapter 7. We've been looking at the characteristics of the Pharisees and, of course, Jesus' harsh rebuke to them, to their arrogant and religious practices. Remember that their commitment to traditions had superseded their commitment to God's Word. And as we go through this, it's important for us to view the whole picture. That's why we've entitled this series, Following Jesus, because we are, as we're going through these pages, we are following him as his apostles and disciples were in real time, and we're learning as they're learning, although our viewpoint now, looking back, is, is much fuller than their viewpoint was looking forward. But Jesus is, again, preparing these men to carry out uh, the ministry following his death and resurrection and ascension back into heaven. He is teaching them every boat ride, every entrance into a village is a classroom in which he is teaching them and preparing them. And the text before us this morning is, is no different. Jesus has just clearly pointed out what pious religion looks like, what fake faith or false faith looks like in the lives of the Pharisees. And in contrast to that, he's now going to show them what pure religion looks like, what real faith looks like. And as we come to this section, it is important for us to know or to remember that, again, Mark is writing this gospel, but he's writing it from Rome, and he is writing it primarily to a Gentile audience, not to a Jew audience. And so obviously one of his main goals was to communicate to these Gentiles, to these Greeks, uh, that salvation goes beyond the Jews to the whole world. And how many of you are thankful for that? Uh, Because that means that it came to many of us. Of course, this was during a time when Jews were very much looked down upon the Gentiles. They were viewed as outcasts. They were viewed as aliens of the covenants of God. They were viewed as separated, really, from the purposes of God. And the, the Jews were very, not, not all of them, but many of them were very, uh, very proud. They, they had prejudice uh, because of the promise. They saw the, the Gentile world as cursed under God's divine judgment. And they truly believed that they alone were the ones who would receive the great benefits of salvation. But that only reflected their misunderstanding of the, the Old Testament. They had, they had isolated themselves from the Gentile world. They had become very hostile to the Gentiles around them. In fact, the attitude of Jonah, which we saw uh, towards the Ninevites, that attitude carries on into the New Testament as well. And so they they hated the idea of Gentile salvation uh, in Jonah's day, and they hated it in this day as well. But listen, here is the point of the text this morning before we get there. The scripture is clear that there is only one God for the whole world, and there is only one Savior for the whole world. And that is Jesus Christ. That is why in John chapter 4 and verse 42 and also in 1 John 4, 14, that Jesus Christ is identified as the Savior of the world. It's why in Acts, when Jesus has ascended back into heaven and he commissions his disciples to go out, he says, to go out to all the world and to preach the gospel to every creature beyond the Jews. And so with that in mind, I want us to look at our text this morning, and I have entitled 
the sermon this morning, The Great Faith of a Dog. And hopefully I don't see any dogs, any puppies in the house this morning. I was hoping you didn't misunderstand the title and bring your dogs with you this morning. I, I thought about entitling this sermon. You can subtitle it, Some Dogs Go to Heaven. All right, so not all dogs, but some dogs go to heaven. Let's stand together for the re- Y'all are a tough bunch this morning. Let's all just laugh, all right? Let's turn to the person beside you and smile, laugh, giggle, do something, all right? All right, here we go. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse number 24. And from thence he arose and went into the borders of Tyre and Sidon and entered into a house and would have no man know it, but he could not be hid. For a certain woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell at his feet... And the woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by nation, and she besought him that he would cast forth the devil out of her daughter. But Jesus said unto her, you might want to mark this little phrase, let the children first be filled, for it is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it unto the dogs. And she answered and said unto him, yes, Lord, yet the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs. And he said unto her, for this saying, go thy way, the devil is gone out of thy daughter. And when she was come to her house, she found the devil gone out and her daughter laid upon the bed. As we go to prayer this morning, I want you to pray. I just found out that Miss Kim Jr. has been taken to the hospital last night as well in Cookville. We want to pray for her. And Brother Daryl Moody, forgive me for getting your last name wrong. It's not Daryl Clark, it's Daryl Moody. I have a friend who's Daryl Clark in Cleveland, Tennessee, so that must have just flowed from that. But let's continue to keep these in our prayer. Father, as we come to your word, we do pray, God, that you would speak to us this morning. Every word of God is inspired. It's all profitable. Sometimes we come to texts like this and we wonder, Lord, how are we going to preach an entire sermon on this thought? And yet there's such richness here as we dive into it that I pray that you would open our hearts, that you would help us to be attentive, that... We would allow the Spirit of God this morning to be our teacher. And Lord, we do thank you for every word of it. We thank you, Lord, for the great principles that are here this morning for us to learn and live by. And we do pray if there's anyone here this morning who has not put their faith and trust in you for eternal salvation, that today would be the day that they put their faith in your death, burial, and resurrection. And we pray, Lord, that they would come to you today for us who are who are your children already, we pray, Lord, that today you would strengthen our faith and you would challenge us from your word. We do lift up Miss Kim to you today and pray that you will be with her even in this moment. Touch your body, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. As we look at the text before us and maybe out beside this section in your Bible, especially verse number 27, you might want to write the reference Romans chapter 1 and verse number 16. Romans 1.16 is a fairly familiar verse that says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all those that believe, say this last part with me, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And when you look at verse number 27 in our text and you see The little phrase, let the children first be filled, that is really the same meaning. He's saying the same thing that Paul is saying in Romans 1.16 when he says that salvation is first to the Jew and also to the Gentile or to the Greek. 
The reason that our Lord came to Israel, listen, it was to bring salvation to Israel, not so that 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 could be the end of salvation, but that through Israel, salvation would go to the whole world. They were to be the means in which the the gospel went to the whole world. And, And so while the nation at large rejected Jesus, there were enough who believed. There were the 12 apostles. There were the 120. There were the 500 in Galilee who then took the gospel on the hills of the Great Commission to the ends of the earth. And of course, on the day of Pentecost and following, thousands of Jews came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And the gospel began begins to spread. And then as you go to the very back of your Bible to Revelation and you get just a little bit of glimpse of heaven and what heaven's going to be like, Revelation chapter 5 tells us that around the throne will be gathered, uh, that there will be people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. That the gospel is going to reach to the whole world. And guess what we're all going to be singing? What we sung this morning, worthy is the lamb that was slain. We're going to be giving glory and honor and praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so listen, we are to be a church this morning that puts a focus and an emphasis on getting the gospel, not just to Jamestown, although we are supposed to get the gospel to Jamestown, but we are a church that is committed to getting the gospel to the ends of the earth, around the world. There's only one true God, there's only one true salvation, and there's only one Savior, Salvation only comes one way, and that is through faith in Jesus as the Messiah, faith in his death and his resurrection. And although this text is pre-crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus is teaching, don't forget he's always teaching his apostles and his disciples, and he is teaching them a very important truth in this text. Most of Jesus' ministry in fact, all of it pretty much had, had taken place in Jewish territories. But in our text today, it, it brings us outside of Jewish territory. And it shows us the, the reality that his love and his compassion and his salvation goes beyond the Jews. Tyre and Sidon, which are mentioned in our text, are, are two of the, the major cities of the Gentile world. Tyre was the hometown of Jezebel. And in the last quarter of Jesus' earthly ministry, he begins now to extend his tour into Gentile territory with his apostles, preparing them for ministry to the ends of the earth because this is a preview to the apostles of what is to come when the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. Now, I want us to look this morning at the faith of this, this woman because I think it is the great point of the text. She is in a desperate situation. And from the viewpoint of the Jews and from the viewpoint of the Pharisees that we saw and we've studied the last two weeks, including the disciples, this woman had no rights to ask Jesus of anything. She was a woman, first of all, and we all know as we study the Bible that even Jewish women were not allowed to be uh, to, to ask the rabbis certain questions. They weren't allowed to be taught. They were to be taught by their husbands. It was a day when women were not looked at in the culture as they are today. They were not looked at as a, in the same light as men. We also see that she was not only a woman, but she was a Gentile. She was a Greek. 
And just to go a step further, she was a Syro-Phoenician, which is a mix of Syria and Phoenicia, Phoenicia being present-day Lebanon. So not only was she identified with the Gentiles, but she was also identified and connected to the Romans. And the point here is this, that her influences were all to be rejected by the Jews. She had no right in their viewpoint to come to Jesus Christ. She would have been a lady who was greatly influenced by both Baal worship as well as the Roman gods. And so this woman had everything going against her. She was an outcast. She was a reject. She would have been lower than, in the Jews' eyes, she would have been lower than a Jewish tax collector who had sold his soul to Rome to buy a tax franchise to exhort money from his own people. She would have been lower as a Gentile, a Canaanite, Canaanite, a a Syrophoenician woman, and for her to come to Jesus would, in the minds of the Jews, be a discredit to Jesus himself that she would even approach him. For even allowing a woman like this into his presence. And remember, this is in contrast to the last two weeks, verses 1 through 23, where he is dealing with the Pharisees and This lady would have had no external qualifications for purity or pedigree. Ritual impurity is written all over her. But listen, Jesus is once again going to remind us that his heart is diametrically opposed to the heart of the Pharisees. He is going to show them in contrast to their pious religion what pure religion looks like. In our story today, this woman's faith is at the heart of the text. And for more details, again, Mark is the action gospel, so he doesn't give us all the details. But Matthew chapter 15 is also the record of this. And Matthew gives us more details. And if you were to look at Matthew chapter 15 in verse number 28, this was the response of Jesus to this woman. Oh, woman, notice this, great is Thy faith, be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. There are a lot of times in the Bible when Jesus commends people for their faith, but there are very few times that he references someone's faith as great faith. And he says to this Gentile woman, you have mega faith, you have strong faith. And briefly this morning, I want to look at the things in this woman's life that characterized great faith. Why? Because faith is the essence of the Christian life. Faith is the only way that you can have eternal life. Faith is the only uh, way that you and I can live a Christian life that brings great glory to God. It is the essence of both eternal life and abundant life. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Without faith, it is what? impossible to please God. Faith is the substance of things that we with assurance look forward to in the future, and it is the evidence of things that we have not seen. And so these are characteristics that all of us need. First of all, if you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ, this is what you need. If you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, we still need these things in our life to have the kind of faith that pleases God. How many of you would like to be known, you'd like to be characterized as a person of great faith? 
Yeah, that ought to be the desire of all of our hearts. And so we see in this lady's life the ingredients to that. First of all, I want you to see that great faith is marked by repentance. By repentance. And this is faith in the right object. And we see this in verses 24 through 27. That repentance is needed for eternal salvation. And repentance is needed in the Christian life. We see in our text an obvious act of repentance on the part of this woman. Her faith is transferred. She turns from her faith in all else. She turns, Dr. Clark, from her faith in Baal gods and all the false gods, and she puts her faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And the only way that you and I can come into eternal salvation is by repenting of our sin and turning uh, from faith in anything else, faith in good works, faith in everything, faith uh, turning from our sin and putting our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. She is now doing what Paul speaks of in 1 Thessalonians 1.9 when he says, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Look, this morning, this woman's faith was only great because it was placed in the right object. Any faith that is just faith that's not put in Jesus Christ is not great faith. Faith in herself, faith in physicians, faith in an exorcist, faith in anything else would not have been great faith. But this is great faith proclaimed by Jesus Christ himself because it is in the right object. It is faith in Jesus Christ. And this took a repentant heart on her part. The object of our faith is, is vital, and we see this in her life. If you look back at Matthew's account again, listen to the details that it gives about her faith and her, her belief in Jesus. She says in Matthew chapter 15 in verse number 22, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. She calls him Lord and she gives him this messianic title, Son of David. You say, what's she doing? She is acknowledging Jesus as Lord and Messiah. The one whom had been prophesied that he would die and rise again. And and let us not forget what Paul writes in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. That if if we will confess with the mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, we shall be saved. Great faith is repentant faith. This woman believes that the only hope to her desperate need is Jesus. And she acknowledges him as Lord and as the son of David, the son of God. And Jesus wants this saving faith. Look, he wants this saving faith, this kind of saving faith to be demonstrated to his apostles and his disciples. He's teaching them this lesson. And they needed this lesson. You say, how do you know that? Because Matthew records their response to this woman. Their response to her was just like their response to the crowd that came to eat. Send her away. Matthew records that their their response about this woman was just get rid of her, send her away. And I want you to understand this morning that if your faith for eternal life is in anything other than Jesus Christ, it is useless faith because it is in the wrong object. 
True faith brings repentance from faith in anything else and places it completely upon the Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke 13, verse 3, the Bible says, I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Our faith must be placed in and on the right object this morning, not only for eternal salvation, but for abundant life here. Look, Christian, if you're dependent on your success and your abilities and your checking accounts and all the things that you can muster up and even your spiritual gifts that you have and you become proud in what you are and what you have, guess what? You are going to live a defeated, useless Christian life unless you and I realize that we need God and God alone. We need the Holy Spirit's power in our life and we depend completely upon Him. To be real honest this morning, it's time for some of us as Christians to repent of our confidence and our faith in other things and put our faith back in the Lord Jesus Christ. To put our our faith and our confidence back in the Holy Spirit of God that lives inside us and realize that we don't have the strength in and of ourselves to do what God wants us to do, that we need God. That with him we can do all things, but without him we can do what? Nothing, nothing. Great faith is marked by repentance, faith in the right object. Secondly, great faith is marked by humility. And this is faith with the right attitude. And we see this in verse number 28, that this woman not only comes to the only reliable object, but she comes in the only acceptable manner. She does not come with an entitled attitude that we see so prevalent in our culture today. She does not come with an arrogant attitude. Look, look at it in the text. She comes needy. She comes desperate. She comes broken. Can I be real honest with you this morning? One of the great problems with American Christianity is that we're not needy enough. We're not desperate enough. This woman is in a desperate situation, and this is a humble cry for mercy, much like the publican in Luke chapter 18 that simply cried out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is the kind of call that Jesus responds to. James 4, 6 puts it like this, God resisteth the proud, but he gives grace unto the humble. How many of you need and want the grace of God. He says there's a prerequisite. It's humility before God. Now, at first, at first glance, Jesus' response to this woman is problematic. When, when we read that, how many of you thought, that doesn't sound like Jesus? In fact, Jesus doesn't respond very often like this, but he is teaching his disciples. Maybe when you, you read it, it says, sounds like Jesus is having a bad day. Until you realize Jesus is God and God doesn't have bad days. But the, the, the response to her is different from most of the responses of Jesus. And so again, it's important for us to look at the whole context to remember what he is trying to teach his disciples here. He's teaching them this important lesson about the reach of salvation because in their Jewish minds, they had been greatly influenced by this mentality that they were the only ones, that they were the elite. And they understand very well that 
Jesus came first to the Jews. Jesus has spent most of his earthly ministry in Jewish communities. And now he is here to teach them this important faith of what saving faith looks like. And it looks nothing like the Pharisees' false faith that we just saw in the first 23 verses. It looks nothing like that. It it looks nothing like a commitment to uh, the outward appearance to rules. It is available, listen church, it is available to those who are hungry and who are humble and who are desperate and see themselves as undeserving of God's grace and mercy. Undeserving of salvation. Externally, this woman had all the strikes against her. Externally, she seems utterly reproachable to the Pharisaic mind. However, internally, what the, what the Pharisees could not see, what only Jesus could see, where it matters in the heart, Dr. Jonathan, she is a remarkable woman. So remarkable that Jesus says, great is your faith. And he takes the time and he deals with her. And so to illustrate his point, Jesus uses Jewish terminology in his illustration that he is going to give. He's going to give them a parable. And in doing this, he's going to use their terminology. Because what did the Jews call the Gentiles? Dogs. They looked down upon them. This was what they called them. And so Jesus uses their terminology to illustrate what John describes in his gospel in John chapter 1 verse 10. It's speaking of Jesus as he who was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. Notice this verse 11. He came unto his own, the Jewish people, and his own what? Received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And so Jesus is giving this parable, illustrating that the gospel was indeed first to the Jews. And we don't typically give pet dogs food while not giving it to our children, or at least I hope you don't. If you do, don't tell us about it, all right? How many of you would say this woman, especially if she was living in 2023, she could have got very offended at Jesus' words? She could have said, I want nothing to do with you. And some people say, and some commentators say, well, Jesus used the nicer version of the word dog. There's two Greek words. There's one like the wild dogs, and then there's one like the house dogs. Now, we have a new house dog. This is uh, Finn right here. And y'all pray for me this week because I'm dog sitting, Finn. Kim and Jordan are in Indiana setting up house. And so Finn and I are, are bonding kind of this week. And I'm, he's growing on me, honestly. You know, I, I like him. He obeys, actually, unlike other, our other dogs. And so this morning, I'm getting ready. I even sent a picture to Kim because I let him in the house. He's sitting there right on the rug, just patiently waiting for me to get finished getting ready. And the family accuses me of slipping him food underneath the table because every time I sit in my recliner, he comes and he sits right there and he waits on me. And Kim says, he wouldn't have done that if you haven't been feeding him under the table. (laughs) But the truth is, is that Finn 
doesn't get a seat at our table, at our dinner table. He doesn't get an invite to Thanksgiving lunch. We like him. We pet him. Some of you get offended at this, but he's not as important as my children are. That's the illustration that he's giving here. We don't give the dogs food while neglecting to give our children food. And back to the text, this Gentile Syrophoenician woman understood well that she was undeserving of Jesus' mercy. And look, you and I as Gentiles, we can come in with a haughty spirit, a proud heart. We can rise up with pride. And he'd say he didn't come to us first. Or we can come like this Gentile woman realizing we are unworthy. But thank God for the crumbs that fall to the floor for us. Thank God that it went beyond the Jews to you and I. That you and I, by the good grace and mercy of God, also have the opportunity to be a part of his eternal royal family. Aren't you thankful for that this morning? And notice her response to Jesus in parable, in, in, after the parable in verse number 28. And you don't want to miss this. Yes, Lord. Would you say that with me? Yes. Yes, Lord. You're right. You know what she's saying? I am unworthy. I, I don't deserve it. Yes, Lord. Yes, you are right. Listen, mark those words in your Bible, but do more than just mark them. Let them mark you. Yes, Lord. This is the attitude in which Jesus responds to. This is an agreement with God about our condition. You know what Romans 3 says? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are all sinners in need of salvation. Yes, Lord, there's no offense, there's no defense, there's no resistance, but here's her response. Even the dogs get to eat of the children's crumbs that fall off the table. I know that I'm not a Jew. I know that I'm not part of the the covenant people. I know that I'm on the outside. I know I belong to this idolatrous nation that I live in that is full of idolatry. I know the Jews are in the privileged position, but don't the benefit it spill off to the rest of us. And listen, she's got pretty good theology, doesn't she? She's exactly right. It's not a different bread for the Gentiles than it is the Jews. It's the same bread. It's the same table. It's not a different meal. Gentiles are not given a separate revelation, a separate object of faith, or a separate way of salvation. All Gentile salvation is the gospel that has overflowed overflowed from the bounty given to Israel. That's what Romans 9 says. Listen to this, Romans 9 verse 23. And that he might make known the riches of his glory... On the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he saith also in Osi, I will call them my people, which were not my people. I will call them my people, which were not my people. I will allow them into the family of God. 
and her beloved, which was not my beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. That is you and I. And it's a description of our text today in Mark chapter 7. Great faith for salvation and great faith to be used by God comes from a heart of repentance. But listen, it also comes from a heart of humility. Listen, we have a major problem in our nation and even in our churches of entitlement, of arrogance, of pride, of thinking we're something and that we deserve something. We need to come back to this fact, church, that we are unworthy but by Jesus Christ. It's all of grace. It's all of mercy. If it was not for the mercy of God extended to you and I, then today we would have no hope of eternity with Christ. And that brings us to the last and final point, that great faith results in a response of mercy by Jesus. Look at verse 29 and 30 again. And he said unto her, for this saying, go thy way. The devil is gone out of thy daughter, and when she was come to her house, she found the devil gone out, and her daughter laid upon the bed. No proof needed in this woman's life. Remember what Thomas said after they told him that Jesus had risen from the grave? Except I see it in his hands and his feet, I will not believe it. How many times had he been told? You want to know why this woman's faith was called great faith? She didn't even have to see it. She didn't even have to have proof of it. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. So he said to her in verse 29, for this saying, or because of your answer. Remember the beginning of her answer? Yes, Lord. Because of your answer, he acknowledged that Her answer was evidence of true faith, still penitent, still broken, still knowing that she deserved nothing. She calls him Lord. And he says, because of this, go, leave. The demon has gone out of your daughter. I love this about Jesus too. His power was omnipresent. So we're going to look at tonight. He didn't have to be there. He could be miles away, speak it into existence, and it happens. His power is everywhere, and the demon was dispelled out of this little girl. Go now. Here's the application as we close this morning. First of all, no matter what your past is, no matter what your pedigree is, no matter what you have done, no matter where you have been, no matter your rap sheet, If you, from the heart, will put your faith in Jesus as the Son of God, as this woman did. If you will believe, as Romans says, that he died and conquered the grave. While man may look at the outward appearance of you and say, you'll never make it, according to God, he looks on the heart and he sees great faith. And he responds to that. And he will save you if you come to him in that manner. We also see this this morning, that great faith pursues God no matter the cost. 
Listen, one of the great things that you and I can learn from this woman is her persistence. How many of you want this woman praying for you? Yeah, I want this kind of person praying for me who is persistently coming before the throne room of God, desperate, begging for him. It didn't care. This woman didn't care what it cost her. No matter what other people thought about her, her allegiance was to Jesus Christ. And then we see that God responds to a spirit of neediness. And I want to ask you, as the Holy Spirit asked me this week in study, when is the last time you came to me in real desperation and neediness? Remember what Isaiah said when he saw the Lord high and holy and lifted up? You remember when he got a clear view of God, a clear glimpse of God in his holiness and who he really was? Remember what he said? Woe is me, for I am undone. Listen, church, what we need this morning is a fresh glimpse of God so that we can see clearly who we are. When's the last time you prayed, God, show me my heart? Show me the errors of my heart. Show me the exceeding sinfulness of my heart. Reveal it to me. Search me, O God. Know my heart. I truly believe this. And if we will get a fresh glimpse of God and we will see God for who he is, that we will see ourselves in great need of him again. Desperate for him. When's the last time you came to an altar and you poured out your heart to God and said, God, I can't do this on my own. I need you. Or you came in salvation and said, it's not of me. I can't do enough works to earn salvation. I'm desperate. I need your mercy. I need your grace. I'm putting my faith in you and you alone. Have you ever done that? And then the last thing that we see is that worship begins when we don't have all the answers. Worship begins not when we have all the answers, but when we don't have all the answers. When we're not just trusting in our circumstances, but we're trusting in the character of God. And we're looking at God and saying, God, I trust you. I worship you. I don't see how this is all going to turn out. I don't see how this is all going to end. This woman couldn't see it until she got there and laid her eyes on her daughter. But she went away worshiping Jesus because of her great faith in him. It begins before we have all the answers. You say, well, if God will do this, 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 or this, then I'll worship him. No, you won't. Your faith is in you. Your faith is in circumstances. Worship him when you don't have all the answers. And if you've never come to him for salvation, I want to invite you this morning to put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. For he is the only way. There, is, there are not many ways. There's only one way to God, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ.